Welcome to Disrupting Japan. Straight talk from Japan's most successful entrepreneurs. I'm Tim Romero, and thanks for joining me. You know, there is nothing more interesting than startups in boring industries. They are the ones that are taking on entrenched interests and business convention. And because so few outside of their industry really understand what they do and the problems that they solve, they tend to get a lot less funding and a lot less media attention than consumer facing startups. No. The startups in boring industrial B2B spaces are old school startups. They may not have the party atmosphere or the easy customer adoption. But the truth is that on average, they have the best chance of success. Today, we sit down with Takasato, the co founder of Shipio. A Japanese startup trying to change the nature of the freight forwarding business in Japan. And if you're not exactly sure what freight forwarding is, don't worry. Taka explains it simply and really well at the start of our conversation. We also talk about the challenges of pivoting in a B2B space in Japan. And how to balance the very real trade offs between the scalability of offering B2B SaaS products with the stability of offering a service direct to the customer. And if you're interested in the freight forwarding industry, and by the end of this interview, I think you will be, we, we also talk about how the global market is likely to play out. Freight forwarding might seem like a winner take all marketplace, but Taka explains that this is probably not going to happen. Oh, the, the industry is going to be disrupted. That, that's already happening. But it's not going to play out quite the way that Silicon Valley thinks it will. But you know, Taka tells that story much better than I can. So let's get right to the interview. So I'm sitting here with Taka Sato of Shipio. Thanks for sitting down with me. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me today. <laughs> no, it's been great. We've been, we've been trying to make this happen for a long time yeah, now. Yeah, I know. I know. Glad yeah. you're finally here. So Shipio is a digital freight forwarder. Yeah. But for the audience, let's, let's explain what freight forwarding is. Okay. So let, let's say, for example... Um, I've got some construction equipment yeah. sitting at a factory in China. Mm-hmm. I've got to deliver it to a construction site in Japan. Mm-hmm. What happens and what does the freight forwarder do in the process? Okay, so if you want to ship your equipment from China to Japan, firstly, you need to study the regulations of China and you need to arrange trucks, warehouse, and custom clearance from China, and then ocean freight. And then when you bring it to Japan, then you need to, again, study the Japanese regulation, and you need to pass the Japanese custom clearance, and you need to arrange Japanese trucking, warehouse, and everything. But freight forwarder will arrange it on behalf of you everything. And they arrange everything by using 
phone, email, like faxes, and then. No, that makes sense. So, like a freight forwarder makes all the arrangements, prepares all the documents, but they don't actually own the warehouses or own the ships or the plane. Yeah, we have access to the actual like asset holders, warehouse, like plane or uh, vessels, who are arranged on behalf of those guys. So, freight forwarding is a really well-established business. Yeah. But but tell me about Shipio's customers. Who's using Shipio? Okay, so right now our customer is SMB, like uh, small, mid-sized companies. Especially uh, uh, we have like middle-class companies. They have 10 to 30 shipments per month. Is it a particular type of company? For example, do, do you work with a lot of, I don't know, apparel companies yeah. or? Uh, right now we, a lot of like furniture companies. Oh. And, and general goods maybe. Okay. And is it mainly outbound of Japan or imports Import, to Japan? Import to Japan mainly. What is the size of a typical order in terms of container size? Okay, we call it full container. Inside the container, we have like hundreds of furniture sometimes, or if it's a really bigger table, then like two or three tables inside the container. So it's, it's totally depends. Okay. Yeah. Uh, obviously, we don't ship like a bottle of wine, or if we import the wine, we did once from Italy to Japan, it was like 8,000 bottles. So, I mean, a, a typical order would be something that would be at least, what, a, a quarter of a container yeah. or something like that? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. That makes sense. We also have the air freight. So we have ocean freight, and also we have the air freight. And we cooperate with ANA. Yeah. Actually, I want to talk about that. Actually, I want to talk a lot about the business model. But, yeah. but before we dive into that, let's talk a bit about you. Okay. <laughs> so, I mean, you started Shipio in 2016. 2016, yes. But before that, both you and your co-founder were at Mitsui. Yes. A very traditional Japanese trading house. And, and you joined Mitsui like right out of university. Yes. So when you joined, did you think you were going to be like a lifetime salary man or...? That's a good question because my father and my grandfather, they learned their own business. So since I was kids, like just seeing what they were doing, I don't think I will be the lifetime salary man. But yeah, uh, it's, I, I didn't know. I didn't, I mean, like... Just like a safe path? Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. So actually, my father, like, he was happy I joined Mitsui because he knows all risks about entrepreneurs. Well, yeah. So what did he think when you announced you were quitting Mitsui to start your own company? Yeah, after 10 years, he was also glad to hear that. Yeah, <laughs> but that's great. You know what I find? It's like so many Japanese startup founders now have... One of their parents is some kind of a role model. Either they were a startup founder themselves or they had kind of a different career. Mm -hmm. that, yeah. that seems to be really common. Yes, yes. I mean, after six years, like what, what changed your mind? What, what made you say, yeah, this is, this is what I want to do? So after 10 years, actually 10 years sure. in Mitsui, yeah? I lived in China five years out of 10 years. Uh, it's a lot of challengers and entrepreneurs in China. 
At that time, in Japan, it was like 2015 or something like that. At that time, there were not so many entrepreneurs. And yeah, we have a chance to dive in that market. We'll build our own business model. So I asked my co-founder Takashi, and because we met in China, in Beijing, I asked him like, hey, let's go back to Japan and let's build our business model. And then he said, yeah, why not? <laughs> and so you both had that experience in, in logistics between China and Japan when you were at Mitsui? Mm, actually, not really. really. Yeah, uh, I'm really focusing on more investment side. And Takashi uh, was handling those logistics, especially energy. All right. So, so why, why logistics? It's a tough, low-margin business. <laughs> I mean, it's a hard business to be in. Yeah, yeah. But I saw a lot of like, logistics in Mitsui, and I knew like, they're so inefficient. Like, yeah. It's, it's, it's really annoying. Everything is done by manually right now okay like at that time 2016 but i always explain that their logistics world especially the global logistics of freight forwarding it has not changed the last 50 years so you still have to send a lot of faxes yeah <laughs> okay <laughs> yeah yeah i actually Mitsui, though, Mitsui, I mean, because they're a trading company, so they kind of have this, this kind of deal-making in their DNA, I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But there's a lot of pretty successful startup founders that have come out of Mitsui in the recent Yes, years. like uh, Terada-san from Sansan. Inada-san? Inada from Atama Plus. Actually, he's my doki. Oh, yeah. And <laughs> we stayed at same domi in Mitsui. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. So is Mitsui... Are they supportive? Is there like a Mitsui alumni? Yeah, uh, we, we, have, we, have, we have like Mitsui alumni association kind of, but it's, it's just like association. So. <laughs> just casual over drinks yeah, kind of thing? Yeah, yeah. Oh, all right. Actually, Venture Capital said we also had a lot of like ex-Mitsui guys. For example, Kurabaya-san from DNX, Ito Kengo from uh, D4B. Because there's something interesting going on there because, like, on one hand, it's a trading company, so, yeah, it's natural, but you don't see the same level of entrepreneurial activity at, uh, say, Marubeni or, or Mitsubishi, for, mm -hmm. right? So something interesting going on there, I think. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know I can explain well, but the DNA of Mitsi is basically like entrepreneur. So 150 years ago... Uh, one younger guy, he built Mitsubishi-san uh, with 17 people, I think. Mm -hmm. So our origin is kind of entrepreneur. Maybe that's why. I don't know. Well, back to Shipio. Yeah. Yeah, let's talk more in detail about Shipio itself. So mm -hmm. what is your fundamental business model? Are you just being a better, more efficient freight forwarder? Or are you trying to build a, a digital platform for freight forwarding? Okay. We have several milestones, and our first milestone, actually, we achieved it already. We got all the regulation from Japanese government, and we built like simple fruit forwarding service. And also, we developed dashboard. As again, uh, we are like digital fruit forwarder, so uh, customer can get the quotation from our website, and they can check the cargo situation 
through that website. So. And, and see things like bills of lading and, and yeah. see all the documentation yeah, yeah, online. Yeah, yeah. Okay. They can, yeah, they can upload their documents on our cloud service. So this is our first business model. And we just earn the commission from clients and suppliers. The business model is not so special right now. But after this, like a lot of like uh, freight forwarders these days are asking us, hey, shipbuild, do you sell your system or software to the freight forwarders? And right now, we don't sell it. We, we provide the software and logistics, the actual logistics, to clients, and that's all. But after this, we can provide our service as a SaaS to those providers. What, what you're thinking on that, because that's those are two... The technology is the same, but it's two really different businesses. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And, and if you're a platform provider, you know, your customers won't be too happy with you competing directly with them. Yeah. So yeah. What, what's your thinking long term on that? Long term, we have two ways, but we think about this. One way is like more platformer. And another way is uh, we'll go into more like trade finance business. Because we are freight forwarder and we have a lot of transactions, yeah, we know the flow of the money. Yeah, we can leverage it. Well, that's that's true. I mean, if you become a platform, you become the the um, you know you could get commission on insurance and, mm-hmm. and all kinds of little things that are are part of the process. Yeah, yeah. Freight forwarder, we have a lot of transaction between suppliers and clients. So we have a lot of cash points. Like, if we arrange the warehouse, then we can get the commission for that. And if we arrange the, the trucks, then we can get the commission from them. So you're thinking more of moving back into the platform rather than being an actual freight forwarding company, per se? Uh, it really depends, but actually we going to be more direct to freight forwarding. It's really difficult to be a platformer of the global logistics because there's so much players at the well yeah it's, it's a weird like you mentioned the the technology is from the 70s it's really low margin there's there's hundreds and hundreds of tiny little players yeah so i guess you're it's it's kind of stuck that if you just try to be a platform mm-hmm. no one will take you seriously mm-hmm. because you, you can't integrate with everyone it's it's there it's it's messy right yeah so I, I guess you have to go out there and mm-hmm. prove yourself as a business, yeah. as a freight forwarder, before the other companies start saying, well, maybe we should take a look at this system. Exactly, because when we establish our company, we develop software as a SaaS for freight forwarders and uh, shippers, but we failed it. Oh, okay, that was your first try. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Ah, yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. And then, <laughs> okay, so this is, this is really interesting me like as you mentioned the like business margin of the global logistics is pretty low they don't have money to invest into those softwares so if we develop nice software but nobody can buy it or nobody wants to buy it so we decided to get the degradation and we'll provide the software and actual logistics to the shippers that, yeah, that makes sense because, I mean, I, I used to work in logistics. Yeah. Uh, in, well, in, in customs clearing, actually. And it is a cost-driven business. Yeah. And it seems like costs get pushed down, mm-hmm. right? So the farther down you are, the less incentive there is to invest in new technology. Yeah. So if you're, the, if you're the company that owned the ships, mm-hmm. 
forget about it. You yeah. Know? <laughs> yeah. Uh, you have to absorb every cost cut. Mm-hmm. And so it seems like the only time that people invest in new technology is when some of the really big customers demand it. Someone like Walmart or, mm-hmm. or Amazon. Mm-hmm. So how can you get around that? How, how do you get these companies to invest in something like this when they're notoriously cheap and don't have money to invest? Mm-hmm. Fundamentally, like the Japanese uh, labor population will decrease dramatically in the next 20 years. Even now, they are struggling to find the guy who can manage logistics. They really need to get more efficiency. I mean, like, okay, need so to improve their operation. You think the pain is high enough now that they're looking to make those investments? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But what about in terms of the, the minimum viable product you need? Because, again, this is a very conservative industry. Mm-hmm. And Japanese demands for quality and completeness and uh, customization is really, really high. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. like you said before, you can't integrate with everyone. Mm-hmm. So how much of a complete product did you need before these companies started saying, yeah, yeah, we'll, we'll try you? For example, right now we have around 130 clients using our service every day. They export to or import from 30 countries right now. I think this is really minimum variable product like well that, that's for the that's for the customers that are actually shipping things now right yeah, yeah, yeah and so that's that is i mean you can do what every SaaS company does and you know as long as you look nice and shiny and polished on the outside mm-hmm. you can be like sending faxes behind the scenes and yeah, yeah, th- yeah that's yeah. all good nobody knows it's yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> but for the, for the next step when you're trying to maybe pivot back to being a platform yeah how much? Okay. Because mm. it's almost endless, like what you would need to do yes. to provide a solution. Yes, 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 yes. So I need to walk step by step. But the next step is last two years, we really focus on the shippers and clients. Fred is basically the middleman of the logistics. So we will develop the service for more suppliers. So they can sell their cargo or container or the ship easily. So becoming more of a, a marketplace. Mm, marketplace, it's... I know, it's not that yeah. simple. It's, it's, not, it's, it's not a marketplace, but if the suppliers show their space to us, then we'll take it. In the future, they don't need to sell their space through phone or fax. Okay, so the advantage there would be if they've got half a container empty mm-hmm. yeah. and they've got a shipment that did not, was not delivered to the warehouse that morning mm-hmm. and they've got half a container empty if you can fill it in the next 24 hours. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. Okay, yeah. I could see that really driving costs down. Yeah. Because otherwise they'd be shipping it empty. But to achieve that future, firstly, we need to gather more and more shippers and clients. So... This business model is we really focusing on get demand first and then walk up to the suppliers. Yeah, well, that makes sense because then you have something all the suppliers want. Yeah. Customers. Um, what, what's been the reaction within the industry? Have, have the, the suppliers 
thought this is a good idea? Have they thought this is a threat to them? Have they just been very conservative and just said, this is new, we don't want to deal with it yet? It totally depends again. But for shippers, they enjoy to see this situation. I mean, like a lot of people say like, hey, Sato, we awaited this kind of service uh, for a long time. And eventually it happened. But for suppliers, some of them think we can be the game changer of this industry. But a lot of people still say this is really stupid. Really? <laughs> I mean, not stupid, but it's super complicated. And uh, so like, why bother? Yeah, it's why is it necessary? Yeah. yeah. And, yeah. and <laughs> like, as you mentioned, it's endless game or it's very endless product development. Even integrating, it's, it's almost an endless number of systems you'd have to integrate with. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah. Well, let's see, you, how many countries are you operating in now? Right now, uh, from Japan, between 30 countries. 30 countries? Right now, 30, 30, And is it mostly inbound to Japan or is it a mix of import and export? It's mixed, but mainly we're doing import business right now. All right. So what is the big challenge? What is the limitation in bringing on a new country? Is it legal? Is it customs forms? Is it integration? Is it, ju- is it just finding the customers in that country? Basically, regulations and custom clearance. Why we start from furniture? It's because simply it's easier. For example, we send like perishables from Japan to China or to Indonesia, for example, it's, it's really difficult. Oh, yeah. And, and things like, anything is kind of like mixed materials. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It just, it's never the same when it goes through customs on two different days. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, yeah, that makes sense. Furniture is furniture. Yeah, furniture is furniture. So did you, did you target certain markets to find those customers? Or did you kind of have the customers bring you into a market and decide that, okay, China is important? Uh, China is obviously important, but mm. have you been kind of following customers and following leads into new markets, or do you target them strategically? No, uh, we set the target strategically. So right now we're really focusing on the import business from China and other Southeast Asia's. The goods focusing on uh, furniture's engineering goods. Okay, so so your expansion plans are. On one level, it's more markets. On the other level, it's more types of goods. Yeah, and so we have several layers. The countries, goods, import-export, and ocean freight or air freight. So the combination of those. Okay. Let's see, you recently raised about $11 million. Yeah. <laughs> Congratulations. Thank you. Is that mostly for global expansion and global growth? Yeah. For example, we will open our uh, Osaka branch uh, next month, maybe. So expand our business to all over Japan first. And then also we'll try to open the office in some of the South East uh, Asian countries. Also, we'll try some experimental operation. For example, just for example, but we lend uh, the big warehouse and we'll operate it by ourselves. Okay, so maybe moving into more of the actual operations and less of the platform. Yeah. All right. 
as you become more global, what about companies like Flexport? Mm-hmm. How, how are you going to compete with them? How do I compete to Flexport? They already raised one point something billion, billion dollars. dollars. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Huge. But yeah, I don't think we will compete directly. For example, like in Japan, the biggest uh, logistics company is Nitsu, Nippon Tsubun. Actually, they don't compete to DHL or FedEx because we have a lot of like Japanese regulation. So it's, it's, it's more like located business, I think. Yeah, I, I see where you're coming from, but like one of the things I think is so interesting about software platforms mm-hmm. is um, logistics, customs clearing, freight forwarding mm-hmm. has always been an incredibly local business. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, that's why there's hundreds, probably thousands of, Thousand, of companies yeah. doing this. But if you look at other industries, as business moves on to a platform, you get more standardization yeah. and you get more kind of consolidation and, mm-hmm. and a lot of these local businesses go away. Yeah. And so I'm wondering, do you see the future of this kind of logistics platform, mm-hmm. the future of digital freight forwarding? Do you think there's going to be two or three global players or do you think it's still going to be hundreds or thousands mm-hmm. of small local players? Mm-hmm. In my opinion, there are several big freight forwarders at every big area. How can I say? Like in the U.S. market, in Europe, in Southeast Asia, China maybe, regional players. So it's not like country by country, but it's more region by region. And they will consolidate together. So you think that in the future we'll have a small handful of companies, but each with regional expertise. Yeah. 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 And so I, I guess that makes sense. So that's why you're targeting Southeast Asia, Asian yeah, Japan, expansion. Yeah, Southeast Asia, yeah. Oh. And as a Pacific Navy. All right. And why is that? Do you think it's just the importance of government relationships and expertise and local laws? Is, mm. is that what's going to keep it local? I think so. And maybe like... What will prevent one company from, from being the Amazon of, uh, and it might be Amazon. You know? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. What, 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 but what's a, what prevents one company from just being like the Amazon of global logistics? Mm-hmm. What, what would prevent that from happening? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, there are two reasons, maybe. The first one is regulation, government regulation, and there's like local rules. And second one is, I don't know how to say in English, but problem of business rules kind of like kind of a business culture kind uh, of thing business culture business culture like for example in japan a lot of people want to like customize their logistics oh yeah like <laughs> it's rather, crazy yeah it's crazy <laughs> so we'll bring more standardization but not too much all right so Interesting. So we'll probably end up with a few regionally dominant firms. Yeah, yeah, I think so. So China has Chinese culture, and maybe Europe, they have also another culture, in the U.S., in Japan. Let's talk about Japan. And actually, no, with Japanese logistics, this is something that has always been a mystery to me. Because Japanese shipping companies, Japanese logistics in general, they're Information technology systems are terrible. Everything's way out of date. It's all on paper being faxed back and forth. 
but the delivery companies here are really good. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, they're incredibly efficient and on time and like much yes. better than anywhere else. Like, it's really organized, right? How? <laughs> how yeah. do they do this? Yeah. Yeah, like last one mile we, is great in Japan, like B2C delivery or this is, I think, the greatest in the world. But B2B business, it's really dire so. <laughs> oh, really? Okay. Yeah. So it's that thin layer of polish and friendliness on top of some really ugly processes behind yeah. the scene. All right. Yeah. <laughs> that, that makes sense. Yeah. So um, distribution in Japan is great. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. Okay, Taka, before we wrap up, I want to ask you what I call my magic wand question. And that is, if I gave you a magic wand and I told you that you could change one thing about Japan, anything at all, the education system, the way people think about risk, how quickly people adopt technology, anything at all to make it better for startups in Japan, what would you change? I don't know how to say gaman suru in English. Ooh, gaman, that's a really Japanese thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just the yeah. endurance or stubborn endurance? Uh, maybe. I won't change this culture. Like when I was in China, what I felt or what I saw is that like their culture is, hey, I'm doing freely. I do what I want to do. So you can do what you want to do. I don't care. That's your life. This is their culture. But in Japan, hey, I keep this through. You need to keep this through. I watch you. Let's see, do you mean things like, so for example, like I've noticed if, probably at Mitsui too, but at any big Japanese company, yeah. there's always a lot of s stupid, annoying things that the freshmen have to do. Mm -hmm. And everyone knows they're stupid and not productive, but yeah. because the boss had to do that when he was a freshman. Yeah. That, well, these freshmen have to do it too. Yeah. That, that mm -hmm. kind of a thing? Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, okay. So, so, I do this, and why you don't this? Yeah, I think this culture have changed little by little, but... One of the things that surprised me when I first moved to Japan, and I, I can't say I've ever completely gotten used to it, was that if you ask someone like, well, why are we doing this? Say, oh, well, that's the rules. Yeah. And that's the end of the conversation. Right? And, <laughs> yeah. And, and if you ask, well, why is that the rules? That's just not a conversation you have mm -hmm. in Japan. So, yeah, we need to change the education. <laughs> like, this is totally based on our education from kindergarten or elementary school. If teachers say, do this, and then we need to do that. Yeah. There is no conversation like, hey, why do we need to do this? Well, I've also heard that in general in Japanese schools, there's always one right answer. Yeah. It's, there's no discussion and no, there's, there's one right answer. Mm -hmm. Becomes change a bit, but yeah, basically, yes. But, but do you do see it? How do you see it changing so far? Yeah, some of them recognize this is really stupid or it's cannot stand for like discussion or global leaderships. Yeah, some of them recognize it and then try to change it. But a lot of usual or general teachers, they don't change what they're doing right now. But you know, I think, I think startups are changing it on the business side because 
for a startup, there is none of that history. Yeah. You know, n- no one had to do anything as a freshman. There, there's just, there's, there's no such concept. Mm-hmm. And I guess, you know, another part might be that even the existence of startups. Yeah. So, you know, 40 years ago, someone who was going into Mitsui mm-hmm. was almost certainly planning on retiring from Mitsui. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, it just, mm-hmm. that's what you did. Mm-hmm. But, but these days, you know, there's no more guarantees. No. So maybe, like, the younger people are less willing to put up with that kind of nonsense? Yeah, yeah, yeah. When I joined Mitsui, it was 2006. And at that time, the number of freshmen is, like, around 120. And now increased to 160 to 170 because 20 to 30% will leave Mitsui after 5 or 10 years. So it's it's interesting, like wow, and that that's because they decide to leave, yeah, not because they get fired for bad. No, work no, 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 no. But they still need to keep some number right. of the freshmen. So, yeah. Actually, I think that's a really encouraging sign. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So maybe I mean, maybe that now all of these these freshmen and young employees have have an escape plan. Yeah. Yeah, they they won't have to put up with all of they won't have to gum in mm, no, yeah, through yeah, all yeah. this stuff anymore. Not escape, but they don't afraid to take a risk. Well, it sounds like things are already starting to change for the better. Yeah, 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 yeah. So in Japan, I think after this, a lot of like startup will be established by those challenges. Finally, uh, this country can be can be changed. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm looking forward to that. Yeah. Hey, Otaka, thanks so much for sitting down with me. Thank you very much. Thank you. And we're back. You know, I loved Otaka's insight about hazing in Japan, about how at big organizations, new members are made to suffer because, well, the leadership had to suffer when they joined. Now, many Japanese, particularly those currently in leadership, view this hazing as generally beneficial and as a way to build up a sense of teamwork. But Taka, I think correctly, points out how damaging it is. With lifetime employment a thing of the past, and with the most talented young employees having startup options, more and more of the best and the brightest are venturing out on their own. And these founders are serving as role models for the next generation of potential founders. So this situation is only going to get worse for big companies in Japan. But it's only going to get better for innovation in Japan. After Taka and I ended our discussion, I I gave some more thought to his prediction of the freight-forwarding market consolidating into a few regional players. I I don't think he's wrong. And I, I mean, he understands global logistics a lot better than I do, so, so I'll trust him on that. But I wonder if he's not underestimating a very real danger. E- even if the market ends up as a handful of regional players, it will not be a coalition of equals. While customs and regulations will always provide some protection for local companies— The fact is, firms like FedEx and DHL are already international companies. They are already major regional players in most regions. And over time, 
economies of scale, increasing standardization, and the ability to hire and acquire local talent will allow the biggest firms to nibble away at the market share of the weaker regional players. This may not be a winner-take-all market, but it will be a winner-take-most. And the winners are going to be the companies that play a strong game of offense. If you want to talk more about exciting startups in boring industries, Taka and I would love to hear from you. So come by disruptingjapan.com slash show 160 and let's talk about it. And hey, if you get the chance, check us out on LinkedIn or Facebook. But, but even better, if you like the show, tell people about it. Disrupting Japan has grown not by social media marketing or advertising, but because listeners like you enjoy it and they tell their friends about it. But most of all, thanks for listening. And thank you for letting people interested in Japanese startups and innovation know about the show. I'm Tim Romero, and thanks for listening to Disrupting Japan.